Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, taking an in-depth look at the book of 1 Peter. The first letter of Peter was written to Christ followers who were scattered throughout the known world. They were learning to live out their faith in a whole new world. Peter doesn't want them to be surprised by suffering and persecution. He wants them to see those things as an opportunity to live out their faith. As we study this book together, we'll learn that no matter what happens, we have a God who cares for us, and we have the hope that we will one day be with Him. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. We want to welcome you here to our Valley Brook campus in Granby, as well as to our online campus, and we're glad you're here. Now today is Palm Sunday and followers of Jesus around the world are gathering to recall that day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And in a moment, I'm going to read that passage, but as I do, I want you to imagine what was going on that day. Now, according to the calendar, this was about five days before the most significant religious celebration in Judaism. So people were flocking to Jerusalem from all over to celebrate how God had delivered Israel years and years prior to this from bondage to slavery in Egypt. And now as they were gathering, the streets were becoming crowded with Jewish pilgrims who had come to celebrate that Passover. And as they remembered how God delivered them once before, they were praying and hoping that God would now deliver them from the occupying Roman troops that were in Jerusalem and all around Israel. So let's recall what happened that day. When Jesus and the disciples neared Jerusalem, having arrived at Bethphage on, Mount, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples and gave them these instructions. Go over to the village across from you. You'll find a donkey tethered there, her colt with her. Untie her and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, say, the master needs them and he will send them with you. Now, this is the full story of what was sketched earlier by the prophet. Tell Zion's daughter, look, your king is on the way, poised and ready, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. So the disciples did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They led the donkey and the colt out and laid some of their clothes on them, and Jesus mounted. Nearly all the people in the crowd threw their garments down on the road, giving him a royal welcome. Others cut branches from the trees and threw them down as a welcome mat. Crowds went ahead, and crowds followed, all of them calling out, Hosanna to David's son. Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Hosanna in the highest heaven. As Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. Unnerved, people were asking, what's going on here? Who is this? And the parade crowd answered, this is the prophet Jesus, the one from Nazareth in Galilee. You know what Jesus did on that first Palm Sunday is so important for us as followers of Jesus. He demonstrated that he was fulfilling that prophecy from Zechariah 9 that said that a king would come in riding on a donkey. And the people recognized the symbolism and they praised Jesus in the way they would only do in the first century. They shouted words of praise. They attributed to him to be from the line of King David. They took palm branches from trees and even their cloaks and they laid them on the ground as if to roll out a red carpet to him. 
But what they may have not understood was that in riding in on that donkey, Jesus was demonstrating that he wasn't doing things the way the world does things. He was doing things the way that God does things. Now, to most, if not all the people, they thought a new king meant that he would be bringing in forces that would kick the Roman army out of Israel and that Israel would again be liberated. They thought that Jesus would start a revolution, a military revolution. But on that Palm Sunday, Jesus was declaring that he was a king who was here to start a revolution, but it would be a spiritual revolution. It wouldn't come with military power, but with spiritual power. It wouldn't come with hatred and anger. It would come with love and compassion and grace. Jesus came to change the world by teaching people to love God and love others, and he was calling his followers to join him in that. Now, speaking of his followers, you know, he taught his disciples, he, he taught his most intimate brothers and sisters in Christ that they were supposed to change the world by loving God obediently and by loving others as God commanded them to do so. And then he taught them to go out and teach this to the world. And he gave them a commission to change the world through this. Now, over the past eight weeks, we've been reading through the first letter that Peter wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. And in doing so, he was instructing them as followers of Jesus how to live in a world where they were beginning to experience some oppression and some persecution. And as Peter closes out that letter, he gives those followers three big ideas about how they are supposed to change the world by loving God and loving others. Now, I think it's always important for us to remember that when Peter wrote this letter and he was writing to these Christians who were in churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, which would be modern Turkey, these people were in a distinct minority group. The society that they lived in was one dominated by Roman culture and centered around a Roman religion. And as followers of Jesus... They did not participate in the cultural mores. They did not pr participate in that Roman religion. But instead, they were faithful and obedient to Jesus. And because of that, they were different. And because they weren't like the rest of the world, oftentimes they were persecuted. And so Peter is telling them to do this according to these words. He says, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. And because God will do this, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen, Peter says. So I want to look at those three big ideas that Peter gives us. And here's the first one. He reminds us to be humble. Specifically, this is what he writes. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Now, as uh, Peter starts that off, and he's speaking to those who are younger that they should submit themselves to their elders, 
He is talking about submitting themselves to godly leadership in the body of Christ. Now, and we know from the first four verses in this chapter that Peter's talking about the elders, the, the leaders of the church, and that uh, he wants them to follow the teaching of those elders. Now, I, I made the distinction that it was godly leadership because obviously he wouldn't want you to submit to ungodly leadership. But it should be noted, too, that the reason that Peter is speaking specifically to those who are younger, is that in our youth, uh, we're more likely to rebel against authority, whether we think it's good authority or bad authority. We're more likely to say or do things that we wouldn't say as we've had more life experience and, and more maturity. And so that's why he speaks specifically to them. But then he says to all, he says that we are supposed to be humble regardless of our age. He says in the latter part of verse 5, these words, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now, why is that important? Why is humility important for us to clothe ourselves in? One scholar writes this, humility is to be aware of our personal weaknesses and so to be dependent on God. And to ask God to help us in those areas. Beyond this, humility describes an attitude which puts others first, which thinks of the desires, needs, and ideas of others as more worthy of attention than our very own. Now, in telling us to clothe ourselves in humility, Peter gives us a direct quote from the book of Proverbs. And that proverb says this, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Now, if you're wondering, why does God act that way? It's because proud people invariably trust in themselves and not God. Furthermore, the proud see themselves only with strength and not weaknesses. They consider themselves the standard for others to follow. They display an attitude of arrogant superiority and generally exude a self-centered and self-sufficient attitude. They are not self-aware. So that's why he says we're supposed to clothe ourselves in humility, to be the opposite of proud. Now, in that passage where he says clothe yourself in humility, what does it mean to clothe ourselves in humility toward others? Well, it means to make humility like a garment that we put on, that people see when they observe our actions, when they hear our speech. It's like wearing a coat. When people see you wearing that coat, they understand what it means. I think about this in a very practical way. Years ago, my wife Cynthia gave me a, a bright running jacket that I use when I run on the road. And what I noticed immediately was is that now wearing a brightly colored jacket, vehicles see me. The drivers of, the, of those cars see me. And whereas before they would zoom right past me close to that side, that, that line on the shoulder of the, of the road, now they see me a, a long way off. And they slow down and sometimes they even move over because that bright jacket that I've clothed myself communicates that, hey, there's a pedestrian there, give them some room. And so this idea that we're supposed to clothe ourselves in humility, it communicates a message that we are living a life not for ourselves, but for God, that we are following him and his teaching. And when people see us live in that humble way, clothing ourselves in the way that we live that way, they take notice. 
Because that's not the way of the world or the culture that we live in. And ultimately, they want to know why we clothe ourselves in humility. When we clothe ourselves in humility, first and foremost, it says this, that we're following the example of Jesus, whom the scripture says about Jesus, that he became a human and he humbled himself even to death on a cross. We follow the one who has shown us what it means to clothe oneself in humility. But here's the second thing it tells others. When we clothe ourselves in humility, it says that we are consciously depending on God, not on ourselves. Now, Peter wraps up these thoughts about humility with this statement. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. You know, this is a reminder to all of us that God is all-powerful. And it's an acknowledgement that we may experience pain and suffering, but if we trust God, he will eventually lift us up. Uh, one biblical scholar, Wayne Grudem, writes this. In the time that God deems best, whether in this life or in the life to come, God may lift you up from your humble condition and exalt you in the way that God seems to think best. Perhaps only in terms of increased spiritual blessings on this earth and deeper relationships with him. Or perhaps in terms of responsibility or even reward or honor, whichever he decides is best. Do you know why the world needs that right now? This humble attitude? The world needs that from followers of Jesus Christ they need to see us living humble lives. The world needs that, wants to, needs to see us as followers of Jesus put others first rather than ourselves. That would mean that Christ followers need to think of others' needs before we think of our own, that we would be empathetic and that we would listen to others' experiences and hurts. That would mean for Christ followers to see others' thoughts and ideas and give them worthy attention instead of always having to make it about us. That would mean for Christ followers to actually follow the example of Jesus and be humble. Now that's the first big idea that Peter brings in this closing challenge of his letter. The second one is this. Give it all to God. Verse 7 says this. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, let's just look at that. The, the word cast is a word that's important because it literally means to throw something onto someone or to something. And this verse is specific. It says that we're supposed to cast our anxiety onto God. That's huge. If you've ever struggled with any kind of anxiousness or anxiety, knowing that you can offload it, that you can cast it onto someone else, is huge. And what Scripture is telling us, what Peter is telling us through God's Word, is that we can cast our anxiety on God, that He's strong enough, that he's, He knows everything, and that He is all-present, and that He can take it all on Himself. So cast your anxiety on God. Whether you struggle with anxiety a little bit or a lot, Cast it on to God. I think about that. You know, in the past 12 months, I suspect all of us have had some type of anxiety or, or something as we've lived through this pandemic and all the things that have happened in the past 12 months. And I suspect we could all cast some anxiety, 
some worry, some stress on God and trust him with it. Now, why is Peter telling us to, to cast our anxiety on God? For three important reasons. One is this. He states directly that when you cast your anxiety on God, you're doing it because God cares for you and me. God doesn't want you to be overwhelmed by anxiety. He doesn't want you to be overcome by anxious thoughts. God wants you to know that he cares about you and everything that's going on in your life. So you can cast your anxiety on him. Second, we see that when we cast our anxiety on God, that we're actually trusting God. When we don't do it, we're distracted by our anxiety and we find it hard to trust in God because we're focused on what's stressing us out and causing anxious thoughts. And the third reason is one that's implied in the last big idea that Peter's, Peter's going to give us. But when we're anxious, when we're anxious and not trusting God, we are less able to, res to resist Satan and his demons. So let me ask you, are you feeling anxious? Then cast your anxiety on God. We must know that God is big enough and powerful enough to carry our anxiety, yours and mine and even the entire world, and he can do it for us. So that's the second big idea, to, to cast all your cares on God. Here's the third big idea that Peter closes this section with. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. You see, there's a spiritual battle going on for the souls of humanity. I brought it up a minute ago. And that, that spiritual battle has to deal with Satan. Peter deals directly with Satan's influence. And he says so in a healthy way, these words. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. C.S. Lewis wrote in the preface to his masterful work, The Screwtape Letters, that humans are prone to make one or both of two equal and yet opposite errors when it comes to Satan. We either don't believe the devil is real and we ignore his spiritual reality or we become consumed with the devil's reality and give him too much credit and power in this world. So what does the Bible actually say about Satan? Well, the Bible describes Satan or the devil as the prince of this world, uh, that he resides here on the earth. And the Bible speaks of the devil as a personal spiritual being who is in active rebellion against God and his followers. He leads many demons like himself, and they are bent on destroying life and introducing every sort of evil into this world. They use deceit to attack believers and to blind people who don't believe in Jesus even more to the truth of the gospel. Peter envisions the devil as a cunning and evil personal being who has the ability to attack Christians and to disrupt the life and the unity of the body of, the body of Christ, the church. So in these instructions, Peter gives us some very level-headed thoughts. He tells us to wake up, to pay attention because the devil is real and he will attack the followers of Christ. Satan will use anything he can 
to sow doubt and confusion and to discourage us and make us want to walk away from our faith in Christ. In verse 9, Peter tells us what to do when Satan attacks us. This is what he says. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You see, much of the attacks of Satan happen in our emotions, in our, in our minds. So he, he tells us to resist and stand firm in our faith. We need to know that Jesus' death and resurrection have won the final and decisive victory over Satan and his demons. So the, so the victory is won. And yet, we need to understand this. The Bible tells us that the end of time for Satan and his demons will come in the future and he will be completely destroyed at that time. But until that day, Satan and his demons are still trying to tempt us and draw us away from God. About Peter's instructions regarding Satan, Satan, one author writes these words. To resist the devil effectively, we must draw on the power of Christ. And not yield to Satan in our lives. Furthermore, to resist the devil, the believer must be standing firm in his or her faith and draw strength from what they believe. And then he goes on and points out how throughout the book of 1 Peter, he gives us reminders of what it means to have a firm faith. He reminds us that we are chosen by God, that we've been given a new birth into a living hope, that we have been provided with an inheritance from God that can never perish. And because we are shielded by God's power, we have that strength. Furthermore, he tells us that we've been called out of darkness into God's wonderful light. And that God is building us up as individual believers into a spiritual house. And then he calls us a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people belonging to him. All of those things remind us of having a firm faith and walking in strength. And that's the kind of faith that we need to have, trusting that God is working in us. And he goes on and he points out something important. Regardless of our personal suffering, we need to remember that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering in other parts of the world, and they're standing firm. And so we can stand united with them and have an active resistance to the assaults of Satan. As followers of Christ, we need to trust that God will provide for us with this faith that he has given us. And then we come to the end of this section of scripture, and I'll read that passage again that I read earlier in this message. You see, when we stand firm in our faith, we will know this. That the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory in Christ, after we've suffered a little while, will himself restore us and make us strong and firm and steadfast. And because of this, to God be the power forever and ever. Amen. So let me just bring this to a conclusion. Peter gives his readers these big ideas because he wants them to continue to be faithful followers of Jesus. So he tells them, be humble in this world. And then he tells them, give all of your anxiety over to God. Trust God is big enough to hold them. And then the third thing he says is, listen, stand firm in the faith. You're going to face some of the attacks of Satan. Now he's saying this 
to followers of Jesus Christ that were living in a culture that was very foreign and that were facing persecution, great and small. And he said, trust that God's going to work in you and through you. Now, when I started this message, I talked about this being Palm Sunday, the beginning of the last week of Christ on earth. And we call this week Holy Week. So I want to encourage you to walk with Jesus this week. And we come in here today on Palm Sunday where where Jesus uh, receives all this acclaim for who he is. But as we go through the week of Holy Week, we will see the struggles and the sorrow that Jesus endured for our behalf. And then we'll see on Good Friday how he was crucified. But that's not the end because the end of Holy Weeks ends with the, the Easter Sunday where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus who defeated sin and death for himself and for all who believe in him. So I want to just close with three ways for you to lean into this week. Look, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you would like to become a follower of, of Christ, Today, I'm going to give you the opportunity to tell him that you believe in him and that you want to turn from your sin and you want to follow him. And I'll do that in just a minute. But let me also give a couple of other challenges to you. I want to encourage you this week to uh, download a Bible reading plan and read through the last week of Christ. There are many that you can find out if you go to the Bible app. It's called uversion.com. I want to encourage you to read through those last days of Jesus in your own personal time with God and, and ask him to speak to you. If you need a suggestion, you can go to our website or to our Valleybrook Bible app, and there'll be a suggestion, a suggested reading plan for you there. So I, I want to encourage you to do that. And then I also want to encourage you to join us on Good Friday. We're going to be celebrating what Jesus did for us. It's a solemn service where we walk through the last two days of Jesus before his crucifixion. We'll gather here in this room and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper and then we'll read through those passages. You can join us at 7 o'clock in this room or online. We want to encourage you to be a part of that as we look forward to the Sunday that comes afterwards where Jesus is raised from the dead. So I want to close this time in prayer. I'm going to pray for all of us, but I'm going to start with a prayer for those of you who want to invite Jesus into your life and become a follower of him. So if you would bow your heads and let me pray. Father, as we come here today, we thank you for your love. And for anyone who wants to profess their faith in Jesus today and become a follower of him, I encourage you to pray these words back to God. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died to pay for my sins. So I repent of my sins and I ask for forgiveness. And now I want to follow him, believing that Jesus rose from the dead. And I commit this to you. And we'll say amen to that prayer, but I'll continue. Father, I pray for all of us that we would seek to follow after you each and every day, that we would honor you in our lives, that we would be humble, that we would give you our anxiety, our worries, our fears, and that we would stand firm in the faith and encourage one another to do the same. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.